Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. If you're new to these podcasts, there's something here for everyone, from academics talking about their research to celebrating the work of our students. And in recent weeks, we've been focusing on a return to campus and changes in place to help keep everyone safe during this COVID-19 pandemic. So do catch up on those. For this episode, recorded in September 2020, I was delighted to get some time with our Vice Chancellor, Professor Deborah Humphreys, who's also the chair of University Alliance. That leaves Professor Humphreys well-placed to talk about the future of universities and the long-term impacts COVID could have on institutions, as it will for many sectors. We also discuss the importance of quick and readily available well-being support for students and much more. Deborah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. The start of a new academic year. And I mean, where do we start? 2020 has been a year like no other. Oh, I don't think anybody could really have imagined how we would end up in a situation like this, all the challenges it was going to present. But uh, I think for me, what it's really shown is the extraordinary strength and character and resilience of colleagues in the university. Um, we've been working, everybody's been working all the way through. Um, I'll never forget March the 23rd when we went into lockdown. Um, and just the extraordinary efforts that everybody put in to enable us to get there. Um, and it's been just an extraordinary year. Yeah, it really has. Um, we're sitting here in Molskum during induction week, and usually this place would be teeming with new students. And as students, and they've been asked to do, not to come in unless they, they absolutely have to, it's, it's a lot quieter. So it's a very strange, slower start to the academic year on campus. It, it feels completely odd for me. Um, I'd normally be running around doing lots of welcome talks, reminding every all the students to, you know, you can always ask for help at the University of Brighton and there are a huge number of people there for you. And there are still, it's just they're there for you in a different way. So it is, it is really, really like, I've, I've never experienced a, a, a time like this in a university. Um, and I'm, you know, endlessly grateful to everybody who manages and supports the way in which we've managed to get to the beginning of term. Mm -hmm. And I am equally careful and thoughtful about, you know, we have a long way to go with this infection. Your summer must have been a summer like no other as well, not for all of us, really. I mean, can you give us a bit of a steer about the, the work in general as the university that has been going on in the summer to prepare us for this strange year? Um, so I think, you know, we went into lockdown having everybody putting in extraordinary efforts to get all the learning online to make sure we could assess, continue teaching and learning, we could assess students, we could graduate students, you know, we worked, colleagues worked um, amazingly to help graduate medical students early to get health, get student nurses and health professions and the social work students in practice supporting, supporting our community. And it's not, it hasn't stopped since then. So it's not just getting through the last term of uh, the last academic year, it's been spending the summer preparing for this term now. Um, and I, you know, whether you're in acad an academic school or in a professional service, I, I don't see anybody who hasn't been hugely touched by this. You know, our residential teams who've been supporting students who couldn't get home, international students who suddenly their roots home were gone. Um, and the huge amount of support that's gone into that. So. 
I don't think anybody's stopped. I hope over the August bank holiday when we gave out those extra two days that everybody did take a long weekend off, but um, it's been relentless. We're going to talk a lot more about how this term will look um, in just a bit, and there's loads to talk to you about, including the future of universities, a bit more about COVID uh, as well. But you're a very open and transparent vice-chancellor. We see a lot of you for students and staff. Um, It'd be good to familiarise ourselves, I think, with a bit about you and your background. Um, So for those that don't know, can you just give us a little bit of a whistle-stop tour of of your career up to this point? Um, so um, I think I've been really open about me and, and just about everything about me but so started originally trained as a nurse didn't go to university as an undergraduate I think going to university as an undergraduate is still an extraordinary and wonderful opportunity uh, worked my way through Department of Health um, working in various academic institutions masters PhD uh, and then into leadership roles in higher education transforming curriculum for interprofessional learning in health and social care and ended up at uh, Vice Provost at uh, Imperial College leading educational change there and then this wonderful opportunity came along to lead the University of Brighton and I've been here now since the 1st of December 2015. And going all the way back when you were a nurse is that something you missed a little bit every now and again? I, I mean I trained as a nurse before it got anywhere near university and I think it's absolutely right that we educate nurses in universities it's an incredibly complex and challenging job these days um, but the fundamentals that I was taught back in many decades ago when I trained stick with me every day I mean my knowledge of infection control <laughs> at the moment is is proving to be you know it's just extraordinarily valuable and those fundamentals about how you keep well maintain distance all those really simple basic things about you know hand hygiene it's yeah it's so critical this is a high pressure job and you've been a fairly high pressure job since the start really as as a nurse so you're very used to it and this as a sector is scrutinized heavily as will be your role as vice chancellor as you'll know so do you need quite a thick skin do you think to to do this role um i think you have to have a tenacity that, that enables you to look beyond the immediate. You also need, and which I'm fortunate to have, an extraordinary good and great bunch of people around you, a, a great team. And there are fantastic people in the University of Brighton all, at all different levels. And we're, this is a team sport, running a university. And yes, I, I'm the accountable officer. I'm responsible, ultimately. I'm the one that gets hired and fired by the Board of Governors. But my job is to create a world-class team, uh, and that's what I've been working on doing. Uh, and I don't, you know, yes, it's it's pressurised and, and things are coming, come at you thick and fast, and then there'll be stuff, and you have to hold so many things um, in your in your sort of mind and thinking strategically at, at so many occasions. And, and for many colleagues who have sort of got a particular focus in a particular area as the, as the Vice-Chancellor, you, you've got to have a span across the whole piece. And, and I'd say, you know, having great colleagues is what really makes the difference. Mm-hmm. And you're obviously passionate about education, and you'd need to be. Has that always been something that's been there, or is it something that's evolved over time? Oh, my, I, I, I all credit to my parents. Um, my mum and dad were, you know, my dad took him, left school at 15 and took himself through 
um, the London School of Building to become a quantity surveyor. Um, my mum was particularly talented and went to uh, got a place at a grammar school, but her, my grandparents were all labourers or servants or worked in Portsmouth Dockyard. Um, and the power and the importance of education was always made really clear by them at an early stage. And, uh, you know, my mum came to, she went out to train to be a teacher and then went back into nursing and health visiting. So multiple careers. So it was always really important to my parents. And so it's, you know, it's always been there. And I see what education does in terms of changing life opportunities and life experiences. Yeah, absolutely. The vision for the university, I mean, again, we're at the moment in Morscombe and we're a multi-campus university, but right now we see building work going all around us. A lot of us haven't driven into through Lewis Road for a, a good a good few months, but coming up, it's just completely transformed, isn't it? With these huge like high rises, almost it's like they're sort of towering over you as you come in. It feels completely different. How much will the university have to change over the coming years? Uh, we have to continue to adapt. Any organisation has to. Um, the impact of COVID, if you look at the impact on the national economy, um, jobs, the priorities for the government, which you know become, we get gradually see revealed to us. If organisations that fail to adapt won't get through this, uh, and we have the power and the capability to adapt and change. We need to make sure we've got the the agility, the vision, and the energy to do it as well. That comes to my next question, I guess, about course provision. Um, And there's always the arguments around value for money. Um, How are courses assessed when it comes to um, what might be brought in, what might change? It's always a good thing to know exactly how that works. Um, Well, so in the university, we have a whole process through um, portfolio review and we keep every university keeps its portfolio under review on a regular basis. I mean, I always make the comment that, you know, if we didn't, we'd still be doing remedial gymnastics, and that used to be a a programme in health. Um, And and some of the programmes that we now deliver around digital and computing and cyber security and those sorts of areas, which, you know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have imagined them. So you have to keep your portfolio refreshed and up to date we're, we're about to start um, diagnostic radiography because we've got the opportunity and because we've got a great track record in health to do that so you know you bring new things on you've got to look at provision to go actually this may not be we're not probably the best at doing this and it's not attracting so you know you have to make those tough decisions yeah and none of us know how the world's going to change in these next few years i know you've talked already about the fact that you know different courses will have different interest levels and you've you've talked previously about the fact that even mental health nursing is just you know the interest in that has has skyrocketed and it's about adapting i guess to the the way that the world's working i mean it's just brilliant that we've had something like an 80% increase in the number of people applying to do mental health nursing. Um, It's a fantastic career. It's hugely needed in the health service. Um, It's demanding, it's challenging, but you'll never be without a job if you're a qualified mental health nurse. So I'm delighted, absolutely delighted that we're, we're seeing that. Long may that continue. Yeah. Um, let's come back to COVID. It depends where the messaging is coming from. Like lots about young people apparently spreading the virus. Is it giving students, adults, enough credit? 
I sort of walk, so I go shopping once a week to do the, the grocery shop and, and I can see behaviour in supermarkets that's not um, undergraduate aged behaviour, um, it's, it's a whole range of age groups not quite understanding two metres. Um, and uh, so I, I think it's been a, clearly the movement of students at the beginning of academic term is a big movement of people around the country. But we're all responsible for maintaining distance, hand hygiene, face covering, no matter what arrangements you put in place. And we have put a huge amount of arrangements in place to be able to say that we've got a COVID safe environment. But it's fundamentally down to the behaviour of every individual. So, you know, some of the behaviours you see in terms of pubs and people walking around and, you know, it's that that's the real frustration is that we are each other's safety and it's up to each one of us to follow the rules you've used that word frustration then does it frustrate you does it feel like a lazy argument when you hear or read about the fact that it's it's put back on young people oh i I think i do think it is i think it's an easy it's an easy um line for uh the press to take and Undoubtedly, there is behaviour amongst, you only have to see what's covered on the news, there is behaviour amongst uh, certain groups or in society that are not following the rules. But it's not just young people. You know, I can see 30, 40, 50 year olds um, not quite understanding it. You know, I only, I go to the supermarket once a week because I'm often too late to get any online order. Um, and, and, you know, you, you stand there and you know, somebody's desperate to get that can of tomatoes, they're going to nip in front of you. It's like, I'm sorry, where did two metres go? Um, and I was, was in a little shop in the village the other day. This is a classic example. Standing outside in the queue waiting, it was just me waiting to go in. It's only a little shop. Um, with my face covering on and this there's a guy at the till coming out no face covering um, buying his fags coming out no face covering and I said to him um, just politely I just sort of said "Um, do you have a do you have a face covering and he said to me "Um, oh it's an independent shop it doesn't apply here and it's like you know a sense of frustration came yeah, to the fore. Absolutely. In a previous podcast we've done over the last few weeks, one of our guests has said, you know, our students are going to be some of the best informed in the country here in terms of everything that's been put in place um, to make sure that students know, you know, about one-way systems, about social distancing, um, you know, what's expected of them, um, as, you know, for all, from all of us. We've talked to the previous about there's a lot of work that's gone into it, but they are going to know a lot about what's going on, aren't they? And we, and we have to trust students and staff that you know these guidelines are not new either we've been getting used to them for the last six months yeah so we've put out a a, a huge and impressive amount of information and thank you very much for your podcast to the students about it and at the end of the day we're all you know consenting adults and we have to make these decisions and follow the advice Uh, and that's the frustrating piece we only have three things with which at the moment we can deal with this virus you only have to listen to the wonderful Sarah Pitt to find that out. And they are very simple. It's hand hygiene, it's distance, and it's face covering. And if we all followed all of that, we would really help bring you know, the rate of infection down. And the guidance I know from talking to local public health officials, you know, nobody, nobody in 
imposes a set of additional restrictions without extraordinary thought about it and the implications. Uh, but this, this is a critical time as the infection rate rises and, and you know, we're going into winter. I think it was very different in March, heading into the summer in the bright, light you know, months of the year. Uh, so we, we've got, we have got a challenging winter ahead of us. Yeah, but let's talk about Christmas because um, a lot oh, of it, Yeah, well, this is it. I mean, I mean it seems to me that this, um, the, the discussion about students returning home at Christmas has, has actually come off a, 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 an off-the-cuff question on a, on a Radio 4 programme. You, you can't rule anything out. And it seems to have spiralled from there consistently in the media for over a week now. It's a long way off. How do you find stories like that when they do run and run when you know it, it's you, we can plan you can we can hope you know the, the plan would be for students to go home but how do you do you find stories like that it is a bit frustrating we put all the preparation and planning we can we respond to all the public health advice but you know dear dear colleagues in the media that's not often the really interesting thing that stirs up a debate uh, so you know you will see stories running that they'll run for a few days but the energy it absorbs in trying to respond to them and then the hairs it sets running are you know multiple uh, so Christmas you know as you say we're, we're not even in October yet uh, and Christmas is a, a is a good way off but you know students will be thinking about it they'll be thinking about their families but we'll have international students in halls who won't be going home for Christmas, who every year international students may not go home for Christmas for a range of reasons. So we've always looked after students in halls. The fundamental element has to be about keeping people safe and people keeping themselves safe. Um, and we will see as, as the advice progresses, that's what we'll always do. We will follow the advice from Public Health England. This is a big community, and so obviously it's, it's highly likely at some point there will be positive tests. How important is it to be open and transparent with everything that goes on? Yeah, I, I, I personally don't find it helpful to operate in any other way. You know, if we have students or staff who have who test positive, I mean, first of all, they have to get a test. They have to be symptoms and get a test, and if they're positive, then you know, the protocol's quite clear about making sure that people isolate and that they isolate properly. I mean, my concern with test and trace has always been not just the test piece, but the tracing element. So, you know, good public health practice really follows through on um, contact, contact tracing and making sure people respect those rules. Mm. Important that people, students that come here as well, they do, and staff, download that app, the new NHS app. Yeah. We've got QR codes across almost like almost every room across the campus. Make sure you check in. And I know they've had some glitches with it, but I mean, I downloaded it the day they published it. Um, and um, every time I've gone anywhere with a QR code, I've checked in. It's worked really well. Mm. I also have been since April doing the COVID-19 um, app because obviously that's feeding the research data as well and there's about four million of us now doing that and that that's you know every now and again they'll ask you another set of questions about not just how are you feeling and have you had a test but you know building up the evidence base that they've got about behaviors and um the the spread of the the virus 
if there is a situation where there are positive tests, how important is it that, you know, there seems to be a lot of focus on really providing the right well-being, mental health support for our students? Um, I th- mental well-being, I think one of the things that's come out of this, and I'm really grateful to the team who've been doing the sort of the well-being um, tip every day on Staff Central and, and for students as well, it's an incredibly challenging time. So those fundamentals about keeping connected, about encouraging people to talk, um, making sure you know loneliness is something that really worries me amongst various population groups, not just old people, older people, but you know, young people can get dreadfully isolated and lonely in, in, in our society. So just looking out for everybody, um, since March the 23rd, every week, I have one-to-one calls with uh, people all across the university, just as if I were w- walking around the campus. And I've got three simple questions. One is to say hello. The other one is to ask, how are you? And then the other one is just to uh, is to ask about the team, and and that sparked some really fabulous conversations with people all across the university. It's really important for students to know that if they are having some some problems, that they should speak to their student support and guidance tutor, their residential life team. How much would you encourage them to do that? Oh, absolutely. So there's a whole whole range of support services there for every student, uh, and and I, you know, as I always used to say, always said in their sort of um, welcome talks in person would always be, you know, help will always be given at the University of Brighton, but, you know, please ask. And I always make the first years promise me that they would ask early. Don't wait for it to get out of hand. Talk to somebody, um, whether it's your student support and guidance tutor, your personal tutor, residential life, you know, we're all here to help. And I think Pat Wrangles and the team have done a, a fantastic job, and, and with Sarah Hogg and the team as well, about putting that support around people. And it's not just new students, it's obviously our continuing students because, you know, they're, they're looking at some challenging prospects in the time ahead, but hopefully we'll support them and prepare them for, for what's ahead. Yeah, we're preparing for a term of a blended learning. So there's going to be remote learning, there's going to be face-to-face learning. In terms of the remote aspects, and obviously it was an incredible effort almost overnight to move to remote learning back in March, April time. Um, so how much investment has been made to almost improve that offering um, for this new term? So in terms of the um, colleagues have... I've seen some really fantastically innovative examples of how people have used a range of learning platforms and, and technologies to, um, to deliver and put together remote lectures and remote access to material. I've, I'm lined up to do a couple of um, sessions later in the year. Uh, the, the other element in that is I think what COVID really, what we discovered back in March, which we probably weren't fully aware of, because we never really asked the question, was um, the number of students who lacked the appropriate digital facilities. So just as I keep saying, just because people are walking around with a mobile phone, it doesn't mean they've got the laptop with the software that they need or the, 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 the strong enough um, digital connection. So since then, we've, we've spent about half a million pounds on buying laptops and dongles and various pieces of kit to give to students to allow them to enable them to engage in remote learning and many of them don't have a space in which to do that 
Um, and again, I think that's all across the sector. I think that challenge has become very real. Yeah, the blended learning approach is different, and and putting a, a positive spin on it, it, it does maybe provide a bit more access to to some students, and some especially some that may have some mature students, maybe or students that have more commitments. Well, back in the um, many decades ago, when I did my tut- my teacher training in London. Um, we used to, all the main hall lectures is incredibly well organised, um, and all the main hall lectures were filmed, and then they were they were captured on a Betamax cassette. You've probably never heard of Betamax. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Don't reveal. <laughs> anyway, it was captured on Betamax, and then if you missed the lecture, you just went into the library and heaved out this massive cassette. And, wedged it into this big machine and sat there with your headphones on and, and watched the video of the lecture. So it, there's nothing new in any of that. So for students who, you know, either have to catch up or want to hear that that wisdom again from that, that particular lecture, you know, for whether it's for revision, if English isn't your native tongue, hearing it again, if you're, I don't know, if you've got a learning challenge that means actually just hearing it several times really helps. You know, how could you not want to do that? that that's got to be a real added value for our students. We've got to talk about the sector in just a moment, but going forward with the sector having learned from what's needed to deliver a better all-round remote experience, could that actually, you know, post-COVID, could that actually enhance the overall experience, the overall offer going forward? I mean, years down the line, having learned these sort of lessons. Well, I think for us as a, a learning community, I think we've we've accelerated the delivery of um, the, our digital roadmap. So Ruth Whitaker, the PVC education, set out a three-year digital roadmap and, you know, we, we've made extraordinary progress on that. And, you know, with the generation for whom carrying around a mobile phone and, and you know, everything online, it, we, the ability to adapt to that, that the, you know, what we've learned from that now, I, I think it would be difficult and not necessarily wise to go back to just because it used to be like that. It's got to go back and be like that because also we'll have learners, learners who've just got used to that now and to remove, say, recorded lectures uh, would be, I'm not sure we'll we'll ever go back there again. Uh, Equally for colleagues who have learnt a whole new set of skills about how to use the technology and feel more comfortable in doing that now. Um, The number of people I've talked to about um, the joy of teams, but actually in terms of the way they work, the way they connect with people, many people saying it's actually made life easier. Uh, The exam boards, the number of people I've talked to who are on exam boards and saying, you know, we're not moving people all across the country, we all sit on teams and it's all done. So I think there are ways of working that that I think will be with us now for the future. Just before we move on to the sector, it's another, another bit on um, some of our, our new students who, if they're of the traditional age, come straight out of of school, sixth form college. They've had a tough year, haven't they, in terms of not being able to take their exams, the confusion over exam results, not being able to say goodbye, have a closure of their school experience. So how important is it to make sure that as well that we, we sort of find that blend between the absolute safest way of operating, but still delivering that, you know, that really good student University of Brighton experience? Well, for, for 18-year-olds arriving in university this year who essentially their formal education 
um, stopped back in March. So they've had six months not in education, thinking, and they were, you know, thinking about their future, preparing for that. And then there's this huge hiatus. Uh, then we've got the A-level fiasco. And now they're at university. The young people I know of that age um, and who I talk to and listen to um, are so keen to get on with their lives. Um, and they're feeling, it, you know, it's hugely challenging. There may there will be students, undoubtedly, who in their wider family networks have had bereavements and a real emotional impact out of this, this situation. But many of them are quite sang The ones I speak to, and obviously I don't speak to everybody, but the, the points of reference I use, they just, they want to get on. They recognise it's hugely pressurised. They may see, you know, situations with their parents where, you know, the, somebody's lost a job, they've lost a family member, um, but they know they need to look to the future. And I think we as a university community being as focused on supporting them as we are, then we have to help them through that because, it, it, you know, it's going to be hugely challenging. I have a nephew who graduated in the summer and... You know, he looks at the job market now and, you know, all that effort. But he remains positive and, you know, we have to keep people thinking to the longer term. Yeah, absolutely. Organisations, universities, businesses, sectors across the world are finding it so difficult to plan this pandemic. We just don't know how long it's going to go on for. Throw in Brexit as well, from our point of view, um, uh, in the UK. And and before the pandemic, before the election in December, we had the Augur review as well. The future of universities has been on the agenda for quite a long time. How carefully thought out does it need to be from here? Uh, <laughs> who are we asking to do the careful thinking? I think probably is the question there. I, the... Um, so there's and there'll be multiple announcements over the autumn. I'm anticipating. I mean, I, I, it's been a huge advantage and help to be involved in the Universities Alliance and and to have the privilege to chair it currently. So you know, our chief exec uh, Vanessa and the team do a brilliant job in making sure we've got a table, a seat at the table in terms of the policy debates with ministers and departments. So there's clearly more change coming. Um, I remind you, of course, that the current government only came into being, what, nine, ten months ago. And they are, through all of this, sticking to their manifesto. So there's some announcements around skills that we're beginning to see which come out of the manifesto. I think there will be more. Um, Obviously, fiscally, the situation now is utterly different. Um, as the country gets into a level of borrowing, the like of which we probably haven't seen the equivalent of since post-Second um, World War. But, you know, it has to be a long-term view. And universities are critical in terms of communities and economies and um, the future research, enterprise, you know, the future workforce for the nation. Um, and we, we've proved ourselves resilient uh, but we will have to continue to adapt. If you don't work for a university, you might look into look at the universities as a whole and think they're pretty cash rich. 
um, and they don't need any support from the government if you were to, I don't know, like reduce fees for certain courses, for example, which has been one suggestion. Um, can you sort of summarise why that isn't the case and the sort of, if that sort of thing was to come into, if that was to, to, to come a thing, what sort of support universities would actually need to plug that gap? So we, like many others in the Institute in the country, um, 70, I think it's 73% of our income comes directly from tuition fee income. So that has been frozen for the last five years. Uh, salaries, pensions, costs have not been frozen. So you're looking at um, a diminishing margin and is as student numbers uh, have declined, that that puts us in that's put us in a really challenging position. So last year we for the first time reported a financial deficit and we'll have to do the same again unfortunately this year. We've lost all our summer income, as with every institution. So we weren't hiring out our halls. We weren't making income during the summer from other sources. Uh, and the margins are incredibly tight. And there are certain um, financial imperatives upon us in terms of you know reserves and cash flow and uh, all of those elements into our accounts that we must be mindful of. And it's, it's really, really tricky. It's really difficult. We're not alone. Um, but my job is to steer our institution to a sustainable future. Um, and sustainable has to take many shapes and forms and, you know, will, will necessitate a lot of difficult decisions. But I'm determined that we have a sustainable future fundamental to that is everything we continue to do to improve the, the quality of the education so that we are we are one of the most attractive universities now there's a massive amount of opportunity and competition in the market now um, and when you saw the a-level results come out obviously with fewer international students this year lots of other universities in different places in league tables suddenly we're attracting a lot more students that's that's the reality of the world we're in and you've mentioned already you're chair of university alliance as well so you get an opportunity to lobby the government yourself have you found that um a challenge um and what sort of i guess you're sort of reinforcing those messages that you've been talking about already about you know making sure there is enough support for universities well right from back in march through the universities alliance and also through universities uk we worked really hard to bring together a collective view across the UK sector which is not easy uh, about what might look like a package of sustainability measures for the sector so the government did a number of them so they there's never been any additional cash in any of this so they brought forward so we'll get two lots of the loan company payment in the autumn of this year that's not any new money that's just cash flow that's just getting money to us a bit earlier the same with our QR from research money. Um, we also agreed that in order to do that, there needed to be a student number cap to manage the volatility that there could be at this year's recruitment round. And lo and behold, the week before clearing or the week after clearing, um, the A-level debacle went. And at that moment, the student number cap got lifted. So all the hard work that we put in just went. <laughs> 
Um, and there we were working, you know, everybody was working twice as hard to try and secure students to come and have a brilliant experience at Brighton. But it, it is a competitive market. You've taught um, quite a lot in the past, even in this podcast a bit earlier on, about the diverse range of subjects that we have here. And again, externally, people might look at the non-traditional subjects and put value of courses on those in terms of tuition fees and things like that. It's been a debate that's been going on for a number of years. But just how important are, are things like the arts, um, you know, engineering, things like that? I mean, we've really specialised in some of those things. And we've seen from this last six months, we've been missing a lot of our arts and culture. And we really, it really misses it. I mean, the contribution it makes to the community is huge. Yeah, and I, you know, I think from the start of this role, I've been really clear about the importance of the arts in our cultural life in society. You know, I might be rubbish at all of it. <laughs> and I'm always stunned and amazed and deeply impressed by uh, our students and our, our artistic offer, uh, you know, the product designers, the architects, the, the textiles are just amazing. The painters, the, the ceramicists, the, I'm going to miss somebody and I'm going to get into deep, deep <laughs> trouble for saying that. But, you know, my, my niece is, uh, is, um, went to the Royal Academy of Music and is a trumpeter and graduated sort of 18 months ago. And, of course, it, it's just disappeared. And it's, it's just painful hearing her experience. And I think the same for any artists and performers um, where everything you know and everything you are and the strength and passion with which you feel that has just gone. Um, I, I was deeply impressed though with that when we put our graduate show online and the learning from that interestingly is the reach of our talent in terms of our graduating cohort was far greater than, than doing the physical show at Grand Parade even though the, the physical show is just always an utter delight. Um, suddenly all of that material online and as a curated collection of their talent I think it's it's fantastic yeah uh, we end every podcast with a bit of let's have a bit of let's have a little bit more fun and just, just to finish has this not off. been fun so far no I mean, it's been great fun uh, for may, may, maybe you answering all the questions having to answer the difficult ones is, is this maybe this might be a bit more easy for you or maybe it isn't um, so same questions we ask at the end of each podcast the first one is what advice would you give to your younger self um, I should have come out as being gay earlier. Yeah. Life would have been a lot easier. Okay. Um, if you could pick any other subject to study at the University of Brighton, any subjects at all, um, so which one's the vice chancellor going to go and join? Easy. Physical geography. Okay. A secret geographer. Yeah? For, for a long time or...? Yeah, yeah. Always wanted to do physical geography. Okay. Um, can you pick a favourite place in Sussex? Um, Again, fairly easy. Anywhere on the South Downs with a view of the sea. Yeah, that's a good shout. If you could give visitors to Brighton, Eastbourne, the area, something to do for the weekend, you can't miss this, what are they going to be? Um, well, actually, it's either, either, either put a comfortable pair of shoes on or get on one of the Brighton bikes and just ride around the place. Um, there's so much to see sort of off the beaten track you know I wouldn't go to various places because you know the the shopping centres but if you just ride around the back streets I love walking around the you know the the architecture 
the range of life that you see you know get off the beaten track go and get on a bike and ride around the place there's so much to see yeah absolutely um tell us something interesting about you which a lot of people may not know oh well i think i'm fairly open actually about (laughs) me um i was oh um so one of the projects i gave myself last year because i do like a project um, was I've got a little bit of a space in the garden and I haven't got enough space for a greenhouse and I haven't got enough space for a, I've just about got enough space for a shed and I couldn't find something that was a combination so um, when we were doing the halls of residence they're known as a it's a DBFO design, build, finance and operate contract so I have my own DBFO so I designed, built and I now oper- financed and operate my own shed, mm-hmm. which has um, lots of glass panels in it and a skylight, and uh, so that I can use it as part greenhouse, part shed. Oh, great! Multi-purpose. Oh. So when did that come? When was that all finished? This summer? Or? Uh, no, last last year. What were we in 2019, Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and finally, if you could pick three people to host for a dinner party, past or present, who would they be and why? God, that's difficult, isn't it? Isn't that difficult? It's a tricky one. You can reveal a lot about someone, maybe, as well. Um, so, there's a person who I've been fascinated by for years because she was a radical and she um, pushed and challenged standards and boundaries. Uh, and she's, you know, she's slightly been disappeared from history because I think she was too radical. So, there's a woman called Ethel Bedford Fenwick, who was the woman who actually got registration for nurses in this country in 1919 so I think she'd be quite a feisty individual to have around a table um, I would love to spend the privilege of spending a bit more time with our own Munro Burdoff would be just she is just stunning and then I think to round it off to bring a sense of a more sense of challenge to the conversation would be Lady Hale extraordinary judge Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much to the Vice Chancellor for her time. Really great to get her views and I hope you found that useful. If you like this podcast, take a look at the back catalogue. There's something in there for everyone. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts too if you can. And you can subscribe via all podcast providers so it just drops in your inbox every Friday. Thanks for listening.